two chapters of Rome, he is writing and establishing basically the principle that uh, that everybody is in need of Christ. And we, we noted that Romans is the only book that was written specifically to explain the Christian doctrine, that the other letters that Paul wrote, he addressed to congregations that where he had established the group, and after leaving them, he found out they had problems, and then he wrote those letters specifically to handle the problems that they had. Paul at this time has not been to Rome. Uh, the evidence is that no apostle has been to Rome. All evidence indicates that the church at Rome was started by Christians that had been converted to other places and then moved into Rome. And we noted that Rome was the greatest city of this day. It had a population, uh, historians say, that was between 2 and 4 million people at this time. Of course, at that time, 2 and 4 million people in the city was, was a fantastic population. They didn't have the sky-rise buildings or, or anything like that like we do to condense everything in a smaller area. Also, even their facilities and bathroom facilities and things like that were of such a nature that room was more important to them. So to have 2 to 4 million people in a city was a very huge city of antiquity. We note a very unusual thing in Rome in that probably more, the historians say, more than half the city was made up of slaves. You see, Rome had conquered the civilized world. There were a lot of wealthy and prestigious there, and so they used slaves to do all the work and to run the affairs and all. And of course, uh, remember a famous slave, Josephus, uh, who was um, a, actually a slave in the house of uh, Flavius and, and took, his, took his name after him. And so here you've got Rome, this large city, the center of the world at that time. Rome controls the known or civilized world, two to four million population, uh, a background in pure paganism and hedonism, uh, a warlike people, and into this atmosphere comes the Christian church. And the Christian church comes in with a message that is the exact opposite of what most of these people had been taught and believed all their life. It came in saying that all your various gods are false and there's only one God in heaven and you cannot represent him with idols or images or anything of that nature. But yet to the Jew, the same message of one God was blasphemous because it also came in saying that Jesus was the Son of God and existed equal with God uh, before he came to this earth and that he was literally God in, incarnate and the, the Jews had crucified him on that blasphemy. So that was their belief on God. They, the society of the, of the Romans would have been amoral. Uh, I don't know of anything you could have done that would have been wrong other than offend Rome. If you didn't pay your taxes or you attacked a Roman citizen or something of that nature. But from a standpoint of what we would think of as morality, sexual conduct, homosexuality, sexual permissives, anything like that, there was nothing in that area that would have been considered wrong at all in Rome. Uh, marriage was uh, as many wives or as many husbands as you so desired or could afford. And this was true of the whole populace. Well, here comes Christianity in, condemning everybody as sinners, uh, telling them that all the problems they have in life are because of sin, and not only that, but tells them that, that their very death that they're not looking forward to is because of sin. And, and, and it was take a look at the body that you live in. You're in a dying body, and that death is because of sin. Take a look at the society and how sick it is, and that sickness is, is because of sin. And so it came in uh, claiming that all the problems in the world were caused by sin against God. 
And then there was this teaching that if you think about it, if you didn't have evidence that was just overly powerful, how would you like to go into Rome, as I've just depicted it, and try to convince those people that, that this Galilean, son of a carpenter, crucified at uh, 33 years of age, no formal education, never traveled to Rome, that he was literally the son of God. Now uh, you think about going into town with that kind of message. And so I'm saying the very fact that the church was established in Rome and so many people were converted and so, so many people changed their entire life is evidence in and of itself that there had to be some extremely strong evidence presented to these people. You just don't change your entire life and all your religious beliefs and, and change everything and become a part of a system that is actually looked down on in the world that you're in unless the evidence is just more than reasonable. It has to be persuasive beyond any doubt in your mind. So the message went in. People were converted. Obviously, before we even examine the evidence, we know that it there had to be something pretty powerful there. And then all of this is on a volunteer basis and to their own detriment so far as the society is concerned. Now, I say that because from the standpoint of Christian evidences, uh, someone might think, well, hey, the Muslim religion is not true, I don't believe, and, and Muhammad, I don't believe, was a prophet. And yet they went in and converted thousands and thousands of people. But if you study the Muslim religion, and if you understand how the Muslim religion is spread today in that part of the country, you know that the Muslim religion was spread through force, by the sword, and when they conquered by the sword, they held the people by the sword. For example, if you're keeping up with the news, you know that uh, it is against the law to worship in any way except the Muslim religion in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, uh, in, uh, in, not on, in Iraq, and in uh, Iraq, I should say, among the Iraqis, but in Iraq, and among most of the Arab countries. It literally breaks their law to worship any other way. And so if you're living in those countries and you're a citizen, you, you better be a Muslim for the sake of your own health and job security and, and everything else. Nobody else is just very popular uh, to Muslims. And so I'm saying that it's Christianity was unique in that it captured the minds of so many people, but they gave into it of their own free will and to their detriment. Uh, to become a Christian was actually definitely to your detriment at this particular time. Okay, now, in the chapters, uh, Paul sets forth, number one, in the first chapter, that uh, man is without excuse in not believing in God. And now you can have an excuse, if you haven't read God's revelation, to not understand the nature of God. But he said, man was without excuse, Jew or Gentile. The invisible God is declared by the things that are. And so Paul sets forth his argument that you're made in the image of God. You have intellectual ability. Uh, you know something doesn't come from nothing. You know that light begets light. There just simply is no excuse that we could look at a creation and not move from that to a creator. All right, then he moves from that into the second chapter to say that I'm going to go a step further. Uh, the problem is, how can these Gentiles be condemned to die in sin when they don't have the law of Moses? And he says, well, you've got something else. You've got your conscience. And that in and of your own conscience, many of the Gentiles came to perceive the rightness of the law and actually lived by the law itself. And he said they would give an account to God based on their own conscience. 
And so he said that there's no excuse for the Gentile being as morally bankrupt as he was. There was no cop out here that he, that he had a conscience. Well, then the Jew is sitting back there very proudly with the law. And Paul says, you've got the law, but so what? It's not the, it's not the people that know the law. It's the people that do the law that's justified before God, and you don't keep it perfectly. So we wind up going into chapter 3, summing up everybody is dead in sin. And, and we, we find out that we're going to die because of sin. And, and as we move through here, through the book of Romans, we are dealing with the most important thing in all of our lives. I mean, despite all the, the talk and the hoopla about houses and cars and money and, and clothing and, and winning and losing wars and diseases and everything like that, the bottom line is we're going to die. Okay, and if, if they eradicate AIDS tomorrow, that means that somebody lives a few more years, but they're still going to die. And if they eradicate all these other weird diseases, we're, we're still going to die. And, 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 if, and if you're smoking and you decide to quit smoking, you might live another seven or eight years, but you're still going to die. Uh, and, and you can go on a diet and exercise every day and eat all the right foods, and you're still going to die. And so the bottom line is that everybody is, is going to die. And there's nobody out there offering any answers to death. I don't know of any in our society with all its sophistication and all our doctors, I don't know anybody that's tackling death. Uh, I know a few people in, in certain circles that are freezing people uh, at the point of death, thinking that there may come a time when we'll get some kind of cure and we can thaw these people out, you know, and, and bring, bring them to And they're selling that, by the way, for pretty good money. But nobody's really doing anything about it. Well, that... What Paul points out here is that the problem of death is brought on by sin. And the interesting thing is that before we even get into all the various evidences, it, it literally makes sense. Uh, when, when we look at the world, we can see that the problems of the world are brought about by people doing the things that this book says is wrong. I mean, we don't have any problem with that. When we look at our own lives, and we're going to do that here in the seventh chapter, we can see that... Uh, uh, that problems are brought about when we do the things the Bible calls sin. So it makes sense. All right, then the latter part of this makes sense too. Uh, we know how we feel about our children. And just because that uh, they may do something that's wrong doesn't mean that we just want to disown them or get rid of them. We, we'd rather see them change their lives and, and repent. And so the next part of the story that Paul reveals here is that God loves us even more than we love our own children. And God knows our predicament, and, and he's not excusing our sin, but the whole death of Christ was God allowing this perfect man to be killed, and then he was going to use him as a sacrifice to atone for all our sins. And then, as we learned in the fifth chapter, he does several things with the death of Christ. Number one, he uses it as a sacrifice to atone for sins so that a just God could justify unjust people and still be just. But then he does something else. The law told us what was right and wrong. But God was still an impersonal being. We talked a little bit last week about loving God and how do you motivate and create that love. Uh, God is still this impersonal being that is somehow separated from us. We don't have the same kind of contact with him that we do with one another. And so Paul says, for the first time, God is now made known so the man could understand God through Christ. And his claim is that the Holy Spirit has motivated us to love God by the information that allows us to know that at a time we were enemies of God and we willfully separate ourselves, 
that God loved us so much that he gave Jesus to die for us. And so the end result of that act is the motivation of love. And so God, uh, on the one hand, condemns sin. He shows how ugly it is and that Jesus literally has to die for it. Uh, he offers him as a sacrifice. He uses a sacrifice to actually motivate love towards himself and towards his law. And then by the, the same token, we'll give a pattern of life for everybody. And then in his resurrection from the grave, we'll give evidence to everybody that the grave does not have to be the end. Okay, now, the problem we dealt with last week is we have our system then developed in, up through chapter 4 and 5 that uh, up through chapter 3, we get us all deservedly dead in sin. And 4 and 5, we get us saved by grace through faith. But then... The question becomes, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and this is a, a question that uh, since you're saved by grace through faith, does it really matter? Uh, just go out here and live like you want to and, and let the grace of God abound. And there have been many in the name of Christianity that have done just about that. Their attitude towards life is sometimes is, well, we're all sinners. And so they really make very little effort to bend or, or change their own personality and their, their own ways and operate under the assumption, well, we're all sinners, and so I'm saved by grace through faith. Well, Paul said, that's not what I'm teaching. And he said, yes, you're saved by grace through faith. But as a result of that experience, if you really understand it, uh, God's expecting some changes in your life. Okay, now we're going to get into this in chapter 7 and 8, the, the need for salvation in Christ, and then uh, in chapter 8, the things that should happen as a result of the change in our lives and the way the entire process works. Uh, Barb, you want to start there with uh, uh, chapter 7, please? Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her, to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So my, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might be, bear fruit to God. For when we, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit of death. But now by dying to what, we, what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, Mark. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So that which is good then became then become death to me, 
by no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do, no, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at my work at I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of the mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. You want to keep going there? Yeah, just read that next verse, then we pause. Oh, the first one. Uh -huh. therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, let's go ahead and pause right there. Uh, really, that's not even a good break for a chapter. That's an arbitrary thing anyway, and we know that as far as aid is concerned. Okay, notice there that Paul, in the first part of this seventh chapter, makes it clear that we are not under the law, and that we are now serving in newness of the spirit rather than oldness of the written code or the letter. But when he makes this statement that as people who are saved by grace through faith, we're, we're not under the law, what Paul is saying is that we're not under the law uh, from the standpoint, in other words, he's not trying to convey the idea that there's no law anymore, that you don't have to pay any attention to any law. But you're not under the law from the standpoint of justification. In other words, you're not looking to the law for your justification. And so he said, and at one time you were married, he pictures that under the law that uh, their relationship was by that law itself. And so that just as a, if one mate dies, then you can, you're free from that person, you can marry it again. He uses that as an illustration to talk about the law, that when they were buried into Christ, and we talked about that in the sixth chapter, and they died to themselves, and they raised to walk in newness of life, and they now belong to Christ. And as people who belong to Christ and are servants of Christ, they're no longer under the law. But he does not want to convey, and we're good into this now, he does not want to convey that the law, there's anything wrong with the law. The law is right and good and holy. The problem is not the law, the problem is us. And the law was meant to give us life. And he mentions that there. What exact verse was that where it said the intention of the law was to give us life? Well, I thought I had it marked, the exact verse where he says, you're right, it's verse 10, okay. 
I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life, all right, the, the law is right. And if we had perfectly kept the law, then we would not stand condemned. Uh, we stand condemned because we do break the law. So the intention of the law is all holy and right and good. And, and Jesus was perfect because he perfectly kept the law. So there's no problem with the law. The problem is that at our best, we fall short of it. And so the end result is the very thing that's intended to give us life in the process causes us death. Okay, come on down to verse 7. What shall we say then is the law sin? Certainly not. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Uh, I would not have known what coveting really was except the law said do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity affording by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire for apart from the law sin is dead okay I, verse 10 i found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death so the law is holy okay we walk through life just like driving down the road if, if there's no signs posted you use your own conscience, your own intellect, to pick out what you feel is the right speed that you ought to drive. And you might, you might very well be in the ballgame. But you don't know exactly what the limit is. But then once you see the limit, and it says 55, well then you know without any doubt. So here you've been driving along at 75, feeling okay, and now you find out that really the speed limit is 55. And so you have been breaking the law. But the problem is now, now you've got no excuse. You know, you, you know. And, and before, when you was driving, before you saw the sign, as long as you were doing whatever was necessary for your own conscience and your own intellect, you would not feel any guilt. But then when you learn, now you began to feel guilt. This whole thing of guilt is based on us believing something's wrong. Uh, we can do anything that is wrong and feel absolutely no guilt if we don't believe it's wrong. That's how that we have uh, uh, so many in our society that can do a whole lot of things. That if, if you can psychologically convince your mind that certain activities simply are not wrong, then you will be able to engage in them and not feel guilt. But the moment somebody comes along and convinces you that this is wrong, then you begin to feel guilt. You have no choice in it. And you're made in the image of God, and if you perceive and understand and believe that something is wrong, then the end result is you feel guilt. Well, the guilt lets us know that, that, that we have broke the law. We have sinned. And so he says this law that was great and should have given me life, all it did was make me feel bad. And so he said, and, and keep in mind, we're, we're looking at law from the standpoint of being justified before God. Uh, the, we're not looking at it from the standpoint of just a, a right guide. Paul's talking about justification. So he says, here you've got these set of rules and inwardly, in your inner person, you can say, hey, that's right, that's good. I can see how life would be better for me and everybody else if I live this way. And so you feel good about it. But the end result, after some experience of following those laws, is that you feel guilty. And you constantly feel guilty. Because you, you take an honest look at yourself, and you realize that I just simply don't measure up. And so the law was intended for your good, and you know it's right, and you know it's holy, but yet it constantly makes you feel guilty. And so you walk around just feeling guilt all the time because you're not living up to what you inwardly know is right. Well, Paul points out something 
And he says in verse 21, I find that this law at work, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body. Okay, he's talking about the battle that you and I face constant. Uh, that, uh, for example, let's deal with some, some of the laws that's, I think, easy to see this on. Uh, the, uh, the teaching of the New Testament is to love your neighbor as yourself. And not inferior at all, but as yourself. It says even to love your enemies. And it says if anybody, if anybody uh, smacks you on one cheek, turn the other, go the extra mile, uh, be ready to give, etc. Et well, that's easy to understand. And we can look at it and say, well, people really did try to overcome evil with good. You know, we'd have a lot, a lot less fighting and killing and war and etc. I can see that's the best way. And yet, whenever something happens to you and somebody has really offended you or hurt you in some way, we find we've got war going on inside us. Inwardly, we're saying God's law is right and I believe it. But all the time, this guy that has, has wronged us, we want to strangle him. And so that just goes, that goes back and forth. And, it, and as you go through your day, when somebody offends you in some way or slights you or whatever, on the one hand, you've got God's law and you know it's right. And on the other hand, you're fighting this battle because you want to go right back at the, at the other person. Well, this is true with any number of things in life. Maybe it's uh, comparable in a physical sense to this person that has made up their mind that for the benefit of my own health that I want to lose weight. So the man, they know all about calories and they know all about everything like that. But then they constantly got to deal with the fact that all this good smelling stuff is stuck there before them. And so on the one hand, there's the intellect saying, no, you shouldn't do it. On the other hand, everything in the body says, I want some of that. And so there's this war that goes on. So now, notice now, if they didn't know anything about calories, and they, if they didn't know anything about cholesterol, and they didn't know anything about heart attacks, and all these other things, they'd just go ahead and eat what they want and feel good about it. <laughs> that, would be, that would be it. But they can't. In our society, all the time they're doing it, all this knowledge about cholesterol and your, and your arteries clogging up and everything like that takes the enjoyment out of it. Right, Joe? It takes, takes enjoyment. And so at one time you can enjoy it. Now you feel guilty. Extremely. Well, what Paul is saying is that when he didn't have the law, he did covet. But he didn't walk around just feeling guilty all the time because it, uh, there were certain wrong things he did that it just simply didn't bother him. He did, and, and this may be if, uh, uh, when it comes to the dealing with our fellow man, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that just kind of sounds right to us, you know, that, uh, that's, that's justice. But then we learn that the Lord expects something different, and so the end result is it creates guilt. Uh, you might have the same thing with uh, the individual that has smoked and and they become a Christian, and, and so they think, hey, I don't, I, I don't want to do this, you know, I want to set a good example, I want to do what's right for my health and all. But on the other hand, the body is addicted to it. And so they got this constant battle, and in their mind, they want to do what's right. They honestly want to do what's right. But their body, before they even become a Christian, became addicted to this. And so this war goes on. Well, sometimes they win the battle, sometimes they lose it. But there's a war, and when they lose the battle, then they walk out and they feel guilty. Uh, we had the, uh, a lady that was uh, in the church in the Northeast that we worked with for a long time. In fact, she was going great the last I heard. But she was an alcoholic. And so she, would, uh, uh, she obeyed the gospel, and she's very sincere and committed and everything like that. Uh, but her body became addicted to alcohol before she ever became a Christian. Her parents were alcoholic and all. 
And so it, at times when she was very down and everything, uh, temptation got the best of her. And once she had that first drink, then she always went further. Well, then the end result is she always felt then just tremendously guilty. Well, Paul's saying here, if she felt guilty about it, that's great. That shows that she inwardly loves God's law and believes it's right. In other words, I'm saying when you do something that's wrong and you feel guilty, there is a sense in which you can feel good about your guilt, and that is at least you know your conscience isn't seared, that what that is saying to you, the very guilt you feel, is saying that inward you, you, you honestly believe that God's law is right. And, and that's good. And Paul says you're inwardly acknowledging this. And so Paul said that inwardly, I found myself acknowledging that God's law was right, but yet on the other hand, I constantly had to deal with the fact that, uh, you know, I came up short. Now, when we look at this in the seventh chapter, commentators have debated over the years uh, about, was Paul talking about his, his feelings before he became a Christian, or after he became a Christian, or both ways on that. And, and some of the groups that are, are very legalistic and, and, and leave the impression that salvation is based on keeping some rules, even though they talk about it in Christ, uh, want to take this and say, well, Paul was only talking about himself uh, before he became a Christian. This doesn't apply to Paul afterwards. Well, I believe that's nonsense. I think it's ex Paul is saying that all the time that law is absolutely 100% right before you become a Christian. It's 100% right after you become a Christian. And when you become a Christian... God doesn't do some mystical, mysterious thing to you so that all of a sudden you just perfectly keep the law. In fact, if he does, then some one of us need to, to find that individual who became a Christian and all of a sudden perfectly kept God's law. You know, I, I've met that person. I've met people that would, would do little physical things like maybe let their hair grow long or not wear a makeup or not wear any jewelry or, or do their ordinances in an exactly right way or keep a certain day or something like that and they could do that kind of thing perfectly. But when it comes to really live in the morality and the godliness of the law in a perfect way, I don't do it, uh, even though I believe it's as right as it can be. And I've never met anybody that did, that would, would stand up and say, hey, to, to look at me is exactly like looking at Jesus, you know. It's, it's just not quite that, quite that way. So I'm saying the law here, this would be true before or after. And, and what he's really doing in the seventh chapter is showing this great need for Christ. That uh, I, don't, I don't think, this, and we talk about, uh, like last week, the motivation for loving God I believe that part of what's involved is really realizing just how much that we need Christ, that we actually are deservedly dying and there's no hope for us. And, and the frustration is it's, it's not like something we don't deserve. We have to acknowledge that we deserve it. And then he says, look at verse 1. He ends all of this. First he depicts our condition. Uh, wretched man that I am, you know, what am I going to do? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And notice now, he's not saying that once you're in Christ, you don't have any law. The law is right and holy and good, and man, you're going to suffer consequences, or I'm going to suffer consequences all our life to the degree that we break God's law. They're, they're going to be there. And we're going to be a light to God to the extent that we keep that law. But what he's talking about is, is condemnation. 
There is no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. From a standpoint of justification, you and I look at the law as something that's right and holy, and, and, and it points out what's wrong, and we want to head in that direction and do the very best that we can. And when we've got Christ up there as an example. But the difference is, before Christ, we were headed for that law, knowing it was right, but we constantly felt guilty, we constantly felt frustrated, we constantly felt bad, because we never did live up to what we believed was right. But now, in Christ, it's different. The, the law is right, it's good, it's holy, we're headed in that direction, but in Christ, there's no condemnation. So we don't go around feeling guilty. And we don't go around feeling bad about ourselves. And, and we don't go around thinking what a wretched person I am. But rather, we go around thinking, thanks be to God for Christ. And so we become the people that instead of woe is me, it ought to be the people that is praising God and giving thanks for the salvation that we have in Him. And in every day of our life ought to be lived with the understanding that, hey, at my very best, I deserve to die. And my salvation is a free gift from God because of the sacrifice of Christ that, that he loved me so much that he was willing to die for me. And, and when we talk about love, uh, there's not too many people willing to die for you. That I mean, we, we have love for one another, but that he actually loved to the extent that even though we were his enemies, keep in mind, Paul said, you might be thinking, hey, I, there are some things I'd die for. Well, Paul said that's true, didn't he? In Romans 5, he says, somebody might die for a good man. And peradventure for a righteous man, somebody would die. But who's going to go out and die for their enemy? Who here is going to die for Saddam Hussein? You know, and, 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 or, or anybody, or Hitler or anybody. But the, the great thing about God is that while we were his enemies, we weren't his friends. Uh, he died for us simply because he loved us. Okay, so there's no condemnation. Now, he's nailed down the fact that God's law is perfect. We're not throwing the law out. But we are throwing the law out from a standpoint of justification. That it is a misunderstanding of Christianity to think I have to walk around and perfectly keep the law to be justified before God. What you have to do, according to Romans 7, you have to inwardly agree with that law and believe it's right. And you have to be striving. You're going to always be repenting and confessing your faults. But you're going to walk every day of your life knowing that you're saved because of Christ, that you don't merit it. And, and therefore, you've got all the reason in the world to want to worship and give thanks to him and to take that same good news to others that you come in contact with. I think the best way to do that, and I think you use that a lot of times in your lesson, is like a, a father that loves his son a whole lot and he's wanting to spare him consequences. So he tells him the right thing to do. And us as parents, sometimes we don't know what's best. We'll tell our kids this law or that law or to do this or to do that, and we don't always know what's right or what's best, but God does. He knows what's best for us. And so I think even in teaching our children, if we teach them from that standpoint, that God is a loving Heavenly Father rather than giving you laws to take the fun out of life, that He's giving you laws that that will help you live a successful life. That you, I, I think that's a good way to view it. Hmm. Yeah, the law is right, but then the, the great thing about Christianity was that you you actually walk knowing that although I'm imperfect, I don't stand condemned if I'm headed in the right direction, and you know, and I and I, there's no condemnation to those that are that are in Christ Jesus. I think too the the understanding here that when we think of uh, uh, some of the 
petty things uh, that Christians break fellowship with other Christians on and things of that nature, the, that all of this uh, boils down to the fact if we understand Christianity that we're imperfect at our best, we fall short, our salvation is in Christ, and we're going to see as we go through the 8th chapter, Paul's not going to take anything away from the law. In fact, by the time Paul is through with this, we're going to be better than we would have ever been under the law by the time he's through with the whole process. But, but still, the law will never be something that we're, that we're justified in. Anybody else with any comments? Joe? I had a real large problem with this, exactly what he was saying. Of course, I, hadn't, I was uh, baptized in 79, and I went for a long time. I'm not saying I made any big mistakes. Mm. But, but when something would go away, it would really bug me as to say, okay, now I'm not cutting it, you know. But until I read that right there, I really never realized exactly what the whole situation was all about. And that's it right there. Yeah, I think on the thing this you the mentioned, Joe, that sometimes I believe, and I know I have, I have taught salvation wrong in the past, that... I think that uh, sometimes we have people leave the church when they shouldn't based on a misunderstanding. In other words, that they have it in their mind. Yes, I believe that's right, but I'm not. And when I get it all together, I'll be back. Right. And, that's and that's the, the attitude. And, and I'm saying that, uh, and so what they're doing is inwardly, they're acknowledging, yes, I believe that's right. And I want to do it. But I, I constantly am, am frustrated and, and falling short. And, and even, uh, you know, I've talked to people that were not Christian. And it's, well, you know, I'll do it all the way when I, when I, when I do it, you know. And, and uh, it's, it's like I know that I'm not going to make that now. Well, that's the wrong attitude. That uh, if you believe that it's right and you're sorry that you've sinned and you've changed your mind towards sin and you want to do what's right, well, then you're ready to, to put your trust in Christ and and go ahead and, and, and let Him save you. Then begin the process of growing that's, that's going to be a lifetime process. And just like a child, he starts to walk. He falls several times. When you, start, when you first learn to ride a bike, you fail several times. When you first learn to swim, you swallow a lot of water along the way. And all through life, our experience is that, that we just improve. And we never get perfect at it, but we just improve. Well, Christianity is going to be the, the same way. And, and the person that drops out, that's the very time they need uh, Christ and the church the most. They, their whole support system goes uh, when, 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 they, when they drop out. And, and really, the very guilt they feel and all is saying that, yes, you know, you, your feelings toward the law is, is right. You need, you need to stay in and work this thing out. Okay, let's go on and down through the eighth chapter and let's hit the other side of what, what happens here now with a proper <coughs> understanding of this. Uh, okay, who, where did we leave off last time? Okay, Melinda. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of the life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and what it was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sin, sinful men to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. 
For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and truth. Because the carnal mind is its enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but, it's, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. For you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are his heirs. We are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, let's go ahead and pause there. Now, he's talking about on the one hand that we're dead to sin, we're, we're alive to God through Christ, and then we become a people that is being led by the Spirit, walking by our Spirit. But I want you to note uh, the way this is used in uh, verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Notice that word, if. It, there's, it, it doesn't have to live in you. If the Spirit of God. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. All right, notice... The Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ is used interchangeably. Okay, in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, okay, so Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, and Christ being in you is all used interchangeably. Okay? So the question becomes, just how does the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or Christ in you take place? And this is an important thing. Is there, is there some Spirit from the outside that all of a sudden penetrates our body, and then Christ uh, dwells in us. Okay, I would suggest to you, first of all, before we look at that, if that's the case, then when that spirit, we ought to all be Christ-like. Everybody that's in Christ ought to be just immediately Christ-like, if, they, if, that's, if, that's, what, if that, that's what happens there. But we don't see that. When we come into a, a group of people that are Christians, we see different degrees of Christ-likeness. Uh, we see people that have matured to a great extent and are much more Christ-like than somebody else. We see people that are more spiritual than others. We see people that come into Christ and they're not very spiritual at all at first, but we watch them gradually grow and become more spiritual, you know. And that's, I'm saying that's our experience. Well, let's see that what, what the explanation is so far as Paul's concerned. We've already noted that it's important because that to do what's right and to please God and to go beyond the letter of the law, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or Christ is going to have to dwell in us. The question becomes, uh, how does this happen? Well, turn, I want you to read, turn several places 
One, Ephesians 3.17, and the other, Galatians 4.19. Ephesians 3.17, and then right back to Galatians uh, 4.19. Okay, uh, Jack, would you read that, please, in Ephesians 3, 17? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you be rooted and established in love. Okay, look at that now. It says, Christ dwells in your heart through faith. All right, now turn back to Galatians 4, 19. Okay, read, read that also, Jack. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Okay, okay. now look at that. He says, in Ephesians he said that Christ is to dwell in your heart through faith. And then here he says, writing to the Galatians, he's rebuking them for the most part through here. And he says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In other words, what about the Galatians? Christ had not yet been formed in them. He's already said, by faith you are sons of God, as many as you were baptized into Christ have, have put him on, so they by faith they've been baptized. But what has happened here? Paul said that he's in, he's in the pains of childbirth. In other words, uh, Paul is in anguish. He's concerned about a lot of false things these people believe and the way they conduct themselves. And that's why he's writing to them. And he says he felt that way until Christ is formed to them. In other words, Paul was looking forward to when they would become so mature in Christ that they wouldn't have to have that kind of form in them. So Christ isn't formed in you overnight. These people have been Christians for a number of years and still he had not been formed in them. But Christ is something that's formed in you gradually over a period of time through your faith. As you look at that person that's revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you become more and more like him. Now ask yourself this question. We've already established that we feel guilty when we realize we broke the law. We don't otherwise. How do you become like Christ? How do you know what to become like? Until you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and meditate on what's there. I mean, ask a person that's never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John what it is to be like Christ that I don't, I don't know how anybody would know uh, that uh, until they've actually read, read it themselves. Okay, so Christ is something that is formed. Now, notice, turn over to Second Peter. Second Peter, the uh, first chapter, beginning with verse uh, 4. Okay. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, or become partakers of the divine nature, and escape the corruption, okay, that's in the world through lust, evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to, notice now, what he's talking about is participating in the divine nature, or as another translation says, partaking of the divine nature. Well, how do you do this? He says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Then you add to your goodness knowledge. And you add to knowledge self-control. To self-control perseverance. To perseverance godliness. To godliness brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness love. He says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure. Now what does that say to you? 
He says, add all of these qualities, then if you possess them in increasing measure. Okay, so I'm at a growth process, right? If you're perfect in anything, can you increase in it? You can't. So Peter's writing to Christians, and he says, you partake of these qualities, and if you possess them in increasing measure, in other words, there's something that you're going to be partaking of all your life, that, that you're going to have these qualities before you, and you are partaking of them, and you're going to become more, and patience not something that you become overnight. You become more and more and more patient as you live your life. Uh, you don't become perfectly kind overnight. You become kinder over the years. You don't become perfectly Christ-like overnight. You become more Christ-like over the years. Okay? Then they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord. And so we will be productive if we increasingly become this way. But if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted and blind. He's forgotten that he's cleansed from his old sins. And then it comes on down to verse 10, middle of the verse. If you do these things, you will never fall. Okay? But notice now it's something you do. And it's a choice that you make. And he said, if you don't, you're nearsighted. You've forgotten about your sins and you're going to stumble. But he says, if you do these things, you will never fall. And then you'll be received a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So... When Paul over here uses Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, and Christ in you interchangeably, you can even tell from the context all the way through here that he's dealing with a person who is being changed inwardly through information. In fact, why is Paul writing this to those people except they had to have the information to understand these things? been no need to write the letter. In other words, if the Holy Spirit was mystically just somehow giving them all the right information and causing them to be a certain way, he wouldn't have had to wrote to the Galatians and rebuke their behavior. He wouldn't have had to answer a slew of questions that the people at Corinth had, and he wouldn't have had to do all this explaining in the book of Romans. Obviously, that they were going to get this information as they read it, and then it would be up to their, their choice. And so we have the Holy Spirit then uh, hold your place here again. Flip back over here to Ephesians 3. Because Paul's the apostle writing this. Ephesians 3. Uh, Barbara, would you read that through verse 5? Ephesians 3, 1 through 5. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Okay, now notice there, look at verse 5 and then back up to verse 4. It's been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Look at verse 4. In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight in the mystery of Christ. So the Holy Spirit revealed this information to chosen people like the apostles and prophets. They preached and wrote the information. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. As we partake of that information, 
then we are made spiritual. And, and so as we partake of Christ through this information, we become Christ-like. Christ dwells in our heart through faith. The Spirit of God dwells in us. We are partaking of the divine nature. But what has really happened, it's not a matter of words dwelling in your mind. Every bit of the words of the Bible can dwell in your mind. You still be an, an ungodly person. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev was said to have been an individual that had read the Bible a number of times and, and knew it very well, but he was an atheist. The point is when we allow these words because of our faith in the fact that it is true and from God, when we allow that information to mold our spirit, and it's our very spirit that becomes holy. The word holy is an adjective that modifies the noun, which is spirit. And so we all have a spirit. And as that information is taken into our heart and our spirit is changed, our spirit becomes holy. And our, and our, in fact, even when it speaks of God, we're speaking, the spirit is God. And holy is just an adjective modifying the kind of spirit that God is. He's holy spirit. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not a name. It's an adjective modifying the, the great spirit that created everything that is. And as this information is communicated to us, and we partake of it and submit to it, then our spirit becomes holy. And Christ dwells in us, and God dwells in us. Okay, now, what is happening then from Paul's description, when we serve by the law of the letter, even though we inwardly believed it was right, we walked around feeling bad and guilty all the time because we came up short. And we stood condemned, and, and we just simply felt frustration. Now, he said that, We've been saved in Christ. We have taken our faith out of ourselves. That's what we've really done. We've said, well, I can't make it. I'm going to put my faith in him. He made it. And so we put our faith in him. We've been given salvation as a free gift. There's no condemnation now. We know that uh, there's no condemnation because I'm no longer trusting in myself for my own salvation. I'm trusting in Christ, and he made it. And so there's no way I can stand condemned. But with this knowledge and this love for God as a result of what he's done, the end result is now we walk and serve God not in oldest of the letter that constantly condemned us because we didn't live up to the legality of it, but in newness of the spirit. Christ is there. He's our idol. He perfectly kept it, and we're following him. We feel good about ourselves. We don't feel guilty. We, we, we feel blameless. We have a good conscience because we know our salvation doesn't depend in, uh, down on ourselves. It depends on him. But then the love that we have is causing us to become more and more Christ-like all the time. And so the end result is we're going to live better than we ever lived before. We're going to be more like God would have us to be. We're going to give more of ourselves and everything because we are simply being changed inwardly and we're becoming more Christ-like all the time. I had a, an experience maybe some of you all have had in various ways that uh, when I first got out of the Marine Corps, I went to work at a business in Washington, D.C., and the guy I worked for, I just really liked him, the guy that was manager of the business. I, I really liked him. He just, uh, uh, one thing, he seemed to like me, and, and he was, uh, you know, he, he had certain qualities that, that, for whatever reason, I really liked him. Well, I put out all the time. It wasn't a matter of just an eight-hour day. If, uh, if I was supposed to get off at five and there was a lot of customers there, uh, then I'd go ahead and stay to 5.30 or a quarter to 6 or whatever. I didn't, although we signed in and out, 
uh, that wasn't a big thing to me. You know, that if they needed me, I was, if, if I, I was supposed to get an hour off for lunch, but if they, if they got real busy and I'd only been off half an hour, I'd come back in and work. Or if they was busy when I was supposed to have a break, I just simply went ahead and work. Well, he didn't make me do any of this. I just did it because I liked him uh, as, a, as a person. So on anything like that uh, that I would do. Well, he got promoted and went to another, a bigger store, and they brought in another person to replace him there. And this guy was the exact opposite in many ways of the first one. He was constantly looking over our shoulder. He conveyed the attitude towards us that he didn't trust us. And so that in, in anything we did, he was, he was right there. Uh, he was, you, you, you just didn't feel comfortable doing anything. You didn't feel comfortable getting a cup of coffee. You didn't feel comfortable taking any kind of a break or anything like that. Uh, he just simply made you feel uncomfortable. So fine, I gave him legally eight hours. But when my time was up, I went out the door, even if there was a line there. And when it come time to took lunch, uh, take lunch, uh, I took a full hour. Even there's people there, I took a full hour. He, that was legalism to the, to the nth degree. So what I'm saying is, although he was pushing and demanding and all there, he didn't get near as much out of me as the other fellow did. And I think, you know, that if you like somebody, there is actually that tendency to want to please them and to do for them. If you dislike you have to force yourself in many ways. Well, in the same way, on the one hand, we like the law. We know it's right, I'm saying. But it's still, it's there as a legal requirement, and, and it constantly gave us frustration because we fell short. Now, over here, in this newness of the Spirit, we look and we say, hey, God's not only give us that perfect law, but He understands our predicament. And he understands our situation. And Christ has come and he's been tempted in every way that we've been tempted and yet without sin. And, and at a time when we were his enemies, he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Uh, God so loved us that he gave Jesus for us. And he's made it possible that we can live our lives without feeling guilt or anything like that through Christ. Well, the end result should be to cause a kind of love within us that we would actually do more than we ever would under a legal system. Uh, under a legal system, the law says give whatever, and you do exactly that, or whatever specific. Under the system of love, you may go even beyond the legalities in, in, in any, number of, any number of areas. And so Paul deals then with a change that, that should take place as a result of our realizing what God has done for us in Christ. Any, anybody with any comments over what we've covered here so far? Remember the statement, uh, another uh, parable of Jesus. Uh, well, this wasn't a parable, but it was uh, the, the uh, woman who had been a, a harlot, and she was washing his feet in keeping with the custom of that day. She'd taken the place of a servant. And remember Simon the Pharisee was looking at that, and he was just disgusted with Jesus. And he said, if, if, if you knew what kind of person, that, if you were really who you claimed to be, then there's no way you would even touch a person like that, much less let her, you know, have that kind of contact with you. And remember, he asked Simon a question. He said, Simon, if, if somebody owed you a small debt and you forgave it, and somebody owed you a large debt and you forgave it, which one do you think would love you the most? Well, Simon didn't have any problem with that. And he said, well, this woman has sinned a lot and was forgiven. But that's also the reason she loves a lot. Now, Simon was a sinner too. 
but he really didn't recognize himself as a great sinner. So he didn't have any great love for Jesus. He didn't need him. And I'm saying the, the more we realize the need for Christ and the more we are honest with ourselves and realize that, we're, that even though society says we're pretty good because we're not out there robbing and stealing and shooting people and everything like that, that deep down in our own hearts we know that we're not good. We, we fall short of what God would have us be, you know, even though we meet society's standards. I think the more we realize that, then the more we realize that Christ had to die for us and the end result ought to be a stronger love for Him. Any... Uh, Anybody with anything else? Okay, then the latter part, we'll pause here for the night and maybe pick up that, but the next part talks about the, the future glory and our redemption and things of that nature. We'll wait and get into that. That gets into several other things. We'll get into that next week, beginning with verse 18. told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second, the third, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now when, now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her, well you can see they're talking about some of the same problems that we've got. And but notice their problem is they're thinking physical. And if you're thinking physical, that is a problem. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures are the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor are given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. God's not the God of the dead. And he says, in the resurrection, we're going to be his angels. And what are angels? Well, we know that angels are Hebrews 1, 13, 14. They're ministering spirits. And so angels live in the spiritual realm. And the Hebrew writer said that we've been made lower than the angels for a period of time. The angels could manifest themselves in any way they wanted to. They could manifest themselves as a man, as a burning chariot, uh, any way they wanted to. They could manifest themselves. Uh, they could make themselves so that they could be seen by us are not seen. Either way, remember one time uh, the angel was manifested so that Balaam could not see him, but his donkey could. And he did, Balaam couldn't understand what was going on. And then another time in 2 Kings 6, verse 17, we have the Syrian army that has encompassed the city where God's prophet was. And he, the prophet was just as calm and cool as he could be. And the servant was scared. And he, he couldn't understand why the prophet was so calm and relaxed. And then the prophet said, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And the Lord allowed him to see, and that entire Syrian army was encompassed by the host of God. And so even though they couldn't see him, they were there. Uh, we read of Sennacherib, who led his army against Jerusalem. And the Bible says an angel of the Lord smote his army, and 185,000 died at one night. And from our secular historical records, we read about the Syrian army going in and how that they boasted how that they had Hezekiah pinned up like a bird in a cage 
And then a, a plague hit their army and 185,000 died and they went home a, a beaten people. So the point is the, the angels are there. So we're going to be like the angels. Well, do angels walk on streets of gold? Where is their gold in the spiritual realm? In fact, what would gold be if it were common? Is gravel out here. It wouldn't even be valuable. Uh, the, the only reason it has value to us is, is for one reason, and that's simply because of its rarity, and that's it. In fact, it, just about anything that has value to us, diamond, or etc., is, is because of the rarity, and once you do away with the rarity, it, it, it no longer has that value. I mean, given the choice, all of us uh, would pre obviously prefer water and air to diamonds and gold. But the reason it doesn't, it costs, it's so much more common than diamonds and gold, but, but it's much more valuable, water and air is, than diamonds and gold. I think those type of lessons, uh, Nancy, have, have clouded the issue. And again, where I think this is important, it's like when we talked on the miracles and some of the other subjects. I believe there are people out there who are educated and thinking people who are not maybe that studied in the Bible or anything, but when they hear Christians talk about this streets of gold and the heaven and the pearly gate and all, I think it sounds like so much mythology to them because it's obvious so many times when Christians are talking that they actually believe that in a literal way. Mm -hmm. And when they hear us talk about this literal fire that burns and people cast in this literal fire that just burns and they want water and they keep hotter for water and don't have enough and everything like that, they have problems with that. And so the fact that Christians do believe that in a literal way actually hurts the teaching of the unbeliever out here because it makes the whole thing sound like a myth to him or he'd have no problem relating to it in the way that it is and that's in a, in a figurative way in the way that it was used in, in the first century. I think a good question, at least to my mind, is too for the people that take it literal, is how can you have outer darkness and then fire at the same time? Yeah, and you have to ask questions about those darkness. And a lot of problems. In that, um, the parable about Lazarus and the and the rich man, what exactly, you know, the rich man experienced thirst, and, and he said, you know, I, I, what, what exactly was Jesus trying to convey when he, okay. when he talked about it? First of all, he, in his context, let's go back and look at the whole context there. Jesus has been talking about riches and their love for riches. And uh, where is that located? In the Luke 16. Luke 16. Okay, so in Luke 16, verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. It says, You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone's forcing his way into it. All right, then he comes on down in verse 19. Out of the background, notice what he's just condemned. He's condemned their love of money. All right? 
there was a rich man. And who's he talking to? The Pharisees, and he's just been condemning their love of money. And he said, what you esteem as valuable is not before God. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury and every day. At his gate there lay a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell on the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died. The angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man died and was buried in hell. And if you look down at the very bottom of your page, a little note there says Greek, Hades. You have that? Okay. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in agony. Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Lazarus received bad things. Now he's comforted. You're in agony. And besides all this, between us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead go to them, they will repent. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Okay, in his story, he is condemning riches in the sense of their love for riches. And so then he tells a story of uh, two extremes. One was as rich as you could imagine. The other was as poor as you can imagine but this one that was rich and selfish and that was his problem was itself was his selfishness winds up separated from god and in agony and the other one that was in absolute poverty winds up in a right relationship with god and of course that's where he's going to be in that relationship but his main part of the story is the fact that see remember like we talked in job if you were rich and prosperous and everything they thought you had to be right with god if things were going bad you had to be wrong so he depicts somebody that's in the worst possible shape. Lazarus with the sores on his body and the dogs licking it, and a man winds up in heaven with God. And then somebody that's in the best possible condition, and he winds up separated. And so he, his whole point of the story, really, was not to teach what you and I are studying it for. In other words, everything he told them about Hades and the bosom of Abraham or Abraham's side and the rich man, they already believed that and knew it and, under, and understood it. What he's dealing with them is the fact that the, that you cannot look to your riches and everything as proof that God is satisfied with you, that God even looks down on your love for riches. And on the other hand, some of these people that you look down on with disdain and think God has cursed them, if their heart is right, they're going to wind up in a right relationship with God. So that's his purpose in context, is just simply to deal with the riches and all. And in the process, we just simply have... Uh, the, the story and, and can see that at least they departed this world, they went into the Hadean realm, and they had their consciousness, and that uh, over in Abraham he spoke of the chasm and the fact that there would be the desire of one to go if, it, if, if they were actually permitted it. And so we get a glimpse of it, but really that was we just get the glimpse as he talks about the real thing he was concerned with, and that was riches. So when he talks about the, the fire and all, he's just trying to depict a, as, as bad a state as you can imagine being in. Yeah, the, in other words, the, uh, that he, how do you, in other, 
he was trying to convey to them just simply how bad that it was. And he uses that term of a fire, and just like the other with Abraham's bosom and the comfort and all, but he used the term of the fire there. And it'd be the same way with the streets of gold, etc., you know, in, in Revelation. Do you think now after this, after the, the Gospels, people start looking on death in a different manner than what they looked on it right here? Christians did. Right. Christians. See that even when you died before Jesus, really the sacrifice had not been offered to take away sins. Mm -hmm. and, and you still were waiting for that. And a good example of that, Jack, is turn over here to Matthew 17. There's, well, there's several, but this is a, a good one here. See, I believe really that uh, on that transfiguration, let me see, Luke uh, 9, I believe Luke has a little uh, more than uh, Matthew has on it. Go to Luke, the uh, ninth chapter. Yeah. Luke 9 and uh, verse 28. It said about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and James and John with him and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing. Notice this is what they saw when they became fully awake. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. And then he goes ahead and let's put up three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for him. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid. And a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. There, there again, the purpose of this is not what we're learning. The purpose was to teach Peter that Moses and Elijah are not on a par with Jesus. Forget about them. Listen to Jesus. He's the one that is fulfilled it all and has all the truth. But again, we see something. Moses and Elijah appear and have a conversation with him. But notice what they're talking about. They're concerned about his death and what's going to take place. And that until Jesus actually died on the cross, there was no sacrifice for sin. All of those people in the Old Testament died looking forward to the day when all the seed would, would be blessed through this one that was coming. And then we read in Hebrews how that when he died, then his blood would flow back and would take care of all the sins of those that had, that had died in the Old Testament in a right relationship based on the way God was judging them at that particular time. And for the Jew, it meant that he offered his animal sacrifices, and that blood just kept pointing the way to Christ. But there again, there was going to be a distinction before the sacrifice and after. And again, you and I just simply, I don't think at this point, have enough information other than the fact that the death hadn't taken place. And we see Moses and Elijah, they're concerned about it. And it was something that had to take place, and they knew it. And then the exact state uh, that take place, but, but I believe the passages, and we'll look at them some next week, that these judgment day passages with the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of Jerusalem and then the going into punishment and those that are being blessed and all, I believe that was the judgment 
that took place when, when Christ uh, entered that realm and that uh, had conquered death and conquered sin. And then we have Judaism and all it represented in Jerusalem uh, going to its downfall. And I think you have a different state, you know, at that, at that period of time. But I don't believe we have enough information to fully, to fully understand it. At least I don't at this present time. It's interesting that what the Bible puts its emphasis on is just simply eternal life. And that's, that's it. And the fact that you're going to live forever. And then, it, and then, other than that, it just lets you know that with God is better than anything you can imagine. Like the prophet said, uh, things which our eyes have not seen nor our ears heard concerning the, the word of life that was coming. In other words, beyond even anything that we can imagine is waiting there. And on the other, it is bad. Uh, to me, it's not a big thing in the sense that whatever way it is with those that die outside of the Lord, it's the way that God has it. And it really doesn't matter. I don't want any part of it no matter what. Whether it's annihilation or whatever it is, I don't want any part of it. And on the other hand, uh, the whatever it is, is more than we've got here. And so much so that, like Paul said, he said, I don't even know how to explain it to you. Uh, you know, what he actually experienced over there. But I do know that after the experience that Paul had, that he couldn't wait to get back there and actually made the statement that he would rather depart and go ahead and beat the Lord. That was far better than his state here. As you said earlier uh, in the, the early Christians when they died, or were put to death, they, they went to death um, not fearing death and in Revelations, the second ch chapter in verse 10, uh, when Jesus is speaking to, to the church at uh, Smyrna, is the way you say that? Yeah, Smyrna. Uh, it says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. That's good. And uh, so so he lets them know that some of them probably will be put to death, but that they, they don't have to fear that. Right. The first death... Everybody was going to die. But the point is, the, the most important death was this eternal separation from God. And he said, that's a be thou faithful. And we have often used that like unto death in the long run. But in that context, they were looking forward to many of them dying. Mm -hmm. And he said, be thou faithful up to and including death, is what he's literally saying. And then, after the first death, you have the second death that has no power over you. And that was the that was the important thing, the fact that there would be no second separation at all. That's really interesting. You know, I've, I've been reading some of Foy Wallace's book, he talks about that. And you can see where the Christians, when they received that letter, and when it came to a point that that they saw that fulfilled and that they were they were put to death, you could see why they wouldn't wouldn't fear it. Then I mean, they've, they've been told, you know. I think there's a certain amount of apprehension from the standpoint of the unknown, like in the sense that if you were going to be operated on, where they were going to put you to sleep and operate on your heart, and even though you knew that this operation had been successful any number of times, and let's say that the doctor said, man, it's a sure thing. Of course, he couldn't do it, but if he could. Until that operation is over, there would still be that element of apprehension because you hadn't, that's something to think about, somebody taking your heart out and doing a bypass operation and everything. 
And so there would still be that element of apprehension until then you arose from your sleep and were there. There would, there would just be it. And that's true with anything I think about us. That when we do experience anything that's totally new, there is that certain amount of apprehension until we get into it and actually experience it. And I think that's what it is when it comes to leaving this life, that all we've experienced is in the flesh. And, and so it, 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 it really is, I think it, it, there is that bit of apprehension. But one thing, it seems to me, that I can see where a person with age, after their children is reared, and they, their body has now deteriorated, and that uh, you have accomplished things like the Apostle Paul had in life, and I can see how then that you could reach that point where that you were just ready to go ahead and to leave this body and go on. In fact, uh, I know back before I come to feel the way I do now, you know, I used to think the ultimate was to live as long as you possibly could, you know. But when I see uh, some people that I have come in contact with over the years that maybe live these long lives into the 90s or even hit 100 or something like that, and uh, I see sometimes that although they're living, they really don't have life. And that I really don't know that I look forward to anything like that. That I believe that, uh, that I'd like to live as long as I can be productive and do something and have my faculties and experience some satisfaction and all. And when I reach the point where that, uh, that I would be a burden and could not enjoy those things and all, then I believe I honestly would rather go ahead than just live on as a vegetable and just say you're alive. 